us. Let's turn to the book of John. I know, big surprise. We're going to find ourselves in the book of John today, working on the four-part series, working up to the, spoiler alert, resurrection of Lazarus. We're going to be in verses 38 through 44, and our intention here today has much to do not with just the paying attention to the, the effect that this had, but I want you to see one of the most marvelous aspects of the application to the life of the Christian found in the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a tremendous thing, and usually due to the overwhelming nature of this miracle, uh, it gets overlooked. And I'm going to do my level best not to overlook it this morning. Um, we'll see how the morning goes. Let's go to it. John chapter 11, verses 38 to 44. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs teaching us about the nature of Christ and what he is here to do. John specifically chooses these seven miracles of Jesus to depict aspects of the Gospel and the message that he is bringing to the people should they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and live Everything from his first miracle of the turning of water to wine in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 4, everything from that to the miraculous uh, multiplication of bread on the hillside to the crossing of the uh, Sea of Galilee, walking in its midst to the healing of the blind man, uh, all the way up to today's final sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. All of them show us aspects of the gospel. I think it is normal for Christians, perhaps, normal but not right, I think it is normal for Christians to imagine that the gospel has everything to do with salvation and very, very little to do with the Christian life. It is erroneous to think of the gospel as merely the mechanism of salvation. The gospel is to be proclaimed in the church, not so that primarily unbelievers come to salvation, but so that the people who are in Christ are reminded of what their life is. And so the preaching of the gospel is not merely evangelistic, it is the heart of fellowship. I have often said that the preaching of the gospel, evangelism, as we would usually put it, after salvation is just fellowship. We teach each other the gospel every day by our faith in Christ, by our love of his word, by our continual struggle against that which would put us to death and instead our dependence on the God who has purchased us from death to life. And so if you are here this morning, if you are not a Christian, the message of the gospel is for you. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, the message of the gospel this morning is for you. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, one of the most tremendous pictures of the gospel, is not just about salvation. It is about every single morning, Christian, that you wake up and find you are still in this mortal flesh. And it is Christ who will bring life to these mortal bodies it is the Spirit of God who will work in us desires that bring us Godward. And our primary responsibility is to say, thank you, 
Thank you for working in us, Father, that which is pleasing in your sight, as I had no hope of making it my own. Such humility is our delight and our joy. Because in it we find real life. I've spent a good deal of time in cemeteries lately. Nobody in there is getting up every morning and intending to walk around. Nobody in there is sitting there waiting to hear the words, stand up. Nobody. As the scripture says, the dead do not please the Lord, only the living. They do not praise the Lord. They do not pray. They do not sing psalms. That is for those who are alive. You say, well, what of those who have passed before? Oh, haven't you been paying attention? Those who die in Christ, even if they lose their life, they're alive. There is not a single moment of the rest of eternity, Christian, that you will not praise the Lord. And this morning, as we come to one of the most overwhelming miracles, do not be distracted to think it doesn't apply to you this morning on a chilly September. Because it's written to you and to me so that we may see Christ in every moment and in every day. Let's see it. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read a tremendous passage. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet are bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Our father What a tremendous thing we just read. It is more sure here in your holy scriptures than if we saw it with our own eyes. What a tremendous thing for people to behold that day. What an even more tremendous thing for us to read it here this day. We thank you, Father, for such gifts to your people that speak to us of the desire of your heart that speak to us of the realities of salvation, of our life hidden in Christ, no matter if the greatest enemy overtake us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, for your gifts and your promises. We pray they be enacted in our lives and in our day this day. 
We pray, Father, even for the impossible work of fellowship that you work it in our midst this morning as we preach the gospel to each other's spirits. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you think that you would trust Christ more if you were there that day to see this? I hope not. I hope your heart is stirred because you read what God wrote about it. Peter, having spent time on the Mount of Transfiguration, another one of the most overwhelming miracles in all of the Gospels, hearing the voice of the Father, seeing Jesus glorified, meeting Moses and Elijah, the representatives of law and prophets, all of this... Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, we have something far more sure than that, the written word. Here it sits telling us of a miracle of God incarnate working life in a dead man. John structures it in such a way to show us the reality that what happened here was not Lazarus resuscitating, was not pulling him from the brink of death. No, in fact, John says, and he even refers to him not as Lazarus, Not until Jesus says it. He, in fact, had talked about Lazarus, and then he was dead, and now he just calls him the dead man. It's not by accident. Because Lazarus was not in that tomb. Just his body was. Those of you who know what Christ has already been promising, and we know these things, where was Lazarus? Say it louder, Tony. I saw you mouth those words. With God. Even though you die, yet you live, and your life is hidden with God. He wasn't in the tomb. And Jesus specifically waited for the fourth day so that they wouldn't believe that he was. It overcame every cultural expectation of possibility so that we know, and as his sister says, and look at the way that John refers to her. We'll come back to this phrase that Jesus was deeply moved again. Hang on a second for that. But when he tells them to take away the stone, his sister, it says, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. He is thoroughly and completely gone. All that is left is a physical body that is now degradating because it looks like death is winning. And yet, Jesus says to take away the stone. And John structures this in such a way to express this nature of what they expected was not possible anymore. Everything in accordance with what they imagined wasn't possible anymore, except when God was working in absolutely extraordinary circumstances. Do you know how rare resurrection is? Incredibly rare. We only have three accounts of it in Jesus' ministries. The widow's son in Nain, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. That's it. Do you know in the Old Testament how rare it is? If you leave aside the valley of dead bones from Ezekiel, because that kind of messes up the uh, analogy. (laughs) Plus it was also a vision, so you can kind of get away with not counting that. You have someone like Elisha who is buried on top of a grave, and the man's bones come back to life. It's not typical, is it? No. 
Very rare, incredibly rare. Why? Because it's the ultimate picture. Many of us would imagine that most of our modern sensibilities would be wiped away if we would but witness such a miracle. I promise you they wouldn't. You know what Jesus said about that? He gave actually a parable talking about this, where a rich man and a poor man had both died. And the rich man in torment who had lived for his own pleasure and gave no thought to the Lord or any such thing, he says, Lord, let me return back. Let me go back to my brothers. I have six brothers. Let me warn all of them so that they do not come to this place. What did the Lord answer? Who knows? You get extra credit, little star, little rabbit, whatever you want. What do you got? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them, scriptures. If they do not listen to the law and the prophets, they wouldn't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Thus says the Lord. It means the problem is not lack of knowledge or lack of exposure to knowledge. The problem is for us at the center of who we are. We are as dead as Lazarus in that tomb. Lazarus was not sitting in the tomb going, boy, I tell you, I really hope, really hope that someone comes along and tells me to walk out of this because that stone's really heavy. No. Nor was he sitting there going, I understand, fully dead, Just, I wish somebody would just tell me to come out of here. There was no desire, there was no ability, there was no purpose in his body. His life was hidden with God. His body had nothing and no ability. And still Christ goes to this tomb and declares this in such a way that Martha is afraid of what will happen if they even open the door. Let's see why Jesus is doing this. Look at this phrasing in verse 38. Again, Jesus is deeply moved. If your translation translates that just simply deeply moved, uh, it's trying to to editorialize a little bit. He was angry and sorrowful again. The same thing he had just said back in the previous verses, where he comes and he is weeping and he is angry at death's victory, so-called. It reminds us that death is not something only to be mourned, nor is it something to be celebrated. It is the enemy of the people of God. It is not our Savior. It is not our salvation. It is wrong. We were designed to live forever. That's what the tree of life was all about. And so when Jesus comes to the tomb, which was a cave, and a stone lay against it, he comes and is agitated again. Not angry that some happenstance has happened and God is just trying to figure out how to make it. No, because God hates death. He is the spirit of life. And death is the antithesis of everything that the gospel is. And so to show us this reality, we see Jesus' reaction to death as one of almost pure indignation at it. 
Deeply moved is a churchy way of saying a much stronger emotion. Jesus was indignant at this. And he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Boy, that sounds familiar. Jesus said, take away the stone. Boy, that sounds familiar. Martha, the sister of the dead man, who is no longer called Lazarus in the text on purpose, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I just tell you something? Didn't I just tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Let me connect this with salvation for just a moment, even before we get to the resurrection part. Because the whole purpose of including this is to express to his readers, John, to express to his readers the power with which the resurrection happens. It's not just about the resurrection of Christ, though that is a central message of the gospel, nor is it even primarily about the resurrection of Lazarus. Christian, it is to us. Those of you who are not believers on the Lord Jesus Christ, let me give you what John is saying to you even here. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will live too. We say, well, I'm already alive. No, you're not. You cannot live without Christ. You are as dead as Lazarus in this tomb who's not even called by that name. Why are we that far gone? It is because sin has put us to death. It is what we welcomed in in the garden. Eat of the tree of, the, eat of, the tree of life and stay away from the one tree that will give you a knowledge of good and evil. What did we do? Right, this is not a hard question. It's not a trick question either. What did we do? We took it. Why? <laughs> we wanted it. It's the answer for every sin you've ever done. I wanted to. Oh, and by the way, don't deny that. It's the first step in confession. God, I wanted what was wrong. Why was it wrong? Why was it even put in the garden in the first place? It was the one tree in the entire world that showed us the distinction between creator and creature. And if you eat from that tree, it means you want to cross over to the creator side. Look at what the snake offered to them. If you eat of it, you will be like God. You will take one of his attributes, a knowledge of what good is and evil is. Be like, that looks good. Sounds great. Then I can determine what I'm doing, if it's good or evil. What do we do? Take a bite of it. I don't know why I depict an apple. It's most likely a date or a fig or something. Eat of it. What happens? It takes over everything. Because as creatures, 
We crossed the divide to become like God. And if you have any doubt about it, go to Genesis 3 and see what God says when he shows up in the garden the next morning. They have become like us. Knowing good and evil. And what has it done to us? Say again. It's destroyed us. Do you really think God himself is going to show up in the midst of that destruction and be jovial? Or is he going to be livid that death is killing his creation? And sorrowful for the pain that it brings. And he comes to the tomb and he is broken hearted and he is indignant. Because this one that he created is no longer even known by his own name. Notice he doesn't say, Martha, Martha, why are you upset? He says, Martha. He doesn't even say, didn't I tell you if you believed, you would see awesome stuff? That would make your belief stronger? No. He would say one thing and it would focus all of the energy of that day. All of the focus of that day. Not on the miracle but on the glory of God. Sin has brought death into this this world and you and I are part of that. And God himself is bringing life into this death. And we are now a part of that. Not because we earned it. Not because we sought it. But because of him who calls the dead to life. And he doesn't focus them on how tremendous the miracle is. He focuses them on the glory of God. They took away the stone. (laughs) When we get to John 17, you'll see the most fantastic prayer of Jesus in all of Scripture. It's a whole chapter long. It is astonishing. It is, I am terrified of preaching on it. But listen to this prayer. Jesus lifted up his eyes there before an open tomb and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I'm saying this on account of the people standing next to me that they may believe that you sent me. What does the self-righteous person say? His prayer starts out a similar way. Father, I thank you for not making me like those other sinners out there, so nice and well-behaved. Behold, God the Son speaking to God the Father, thanking him for hearing him. Not because God the Father needed to hear that, but because God the Son was standing next to morons like you and me that can't see it. That because of our inability, that because of our fallenness, We cannot perceive how God is enacting life in this realm. And so Jesus says, you want to see a piece of heaven for just a moment? 
Watch the Trinity interact. Watch it for just a moment. The Father always hears me. I am always grateful to the Father. We are always seeking and saving those who are called by my name. The Father will give me. How many places has he said this in John already? The Father will call and draw those to me whom he desires. And I will save to the uttermost all that the Father draws. And I will not lose a one of them. Why? Because I am the good shepherd. And good shepherds don't lose their sheep. And even hypothetically, if I was to lose one of them, I would turn heaven and earth over to find that one and bring him home. John said, this is, this is no trick. This is no every other day. This is the culmination of the gospel message saying, that which is dead itself is risen to life. Friends, when you preach the gospel to one who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Declare it. Do not apologize for it. And do not try to convince dead bones to walk again. You don't have that power. Preach the gospel and let the God of life himself raise the dead. Have you ever attempted to evangelize somebody in your own power? I have. Guess how far that got? As far as me going to a cemetery and yelling at gravestones. You do not have that power. I do not have that power. We cannot any sooner convince somebody to be risen from their spiritual death in trespasses and sins than we can go to the nearest cemetery and empty it with living people. The preaching of the gospel is not convincing people in their minds to follow Christ. It is proclaiming Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again with power, and saying, believe on him who accomplished all of this, and you too will live. Believe it or not, and you will stay in a hell of your own making unto death. It is not a matter of trying to convince the mind. The mind may be convinced one day and unconvinced the next. The heart risen to life again will never die again. That's the difference. And what Christ is about to say here is not convincing Lazarus to come out. Right? If this was just pure legalism where we had to go, the law says to do something, we do it and we will live. Coming up to a corpse and instructing it and giving it a whole list of things to do. Just stand up and walk out the door. It's so simple. How often will that work? You can go down to here to Hennessy's and ask them how often it's happened. No. Doesn't work like that. So, well, okay, fine. 
We'll just make it super easy to become saved then. Just say this prayer. Just repeat after me. You don't even have to think about it. Just, just say the words and all will be well. No. Preach the gospel. Do not try to make it easy for skeletons to walk. Don't put shoes on bones. Doesn't work like that. We preach the gospel. There is nothing in Christ that he is preparing Lazarus for and making sure everything's just right so that he gets the acoustics well and everything's all fine. No. He just walks up to the tomb, thanks God for this, and tells the dead man to walk out. But here he uses his name. It is not accidental. John removes Lazarus' name from the story until Jesus says it again. Lazarus, past tense, has died. The dead man is in the tomb. Martha, the sister of the dead man, comes up and says, don't open that, he's a dead man. This is what happens to dead men. And John just, like a drumbeat, reminds us of it over and over and over again. This is not Lazarus, this is not Lazarus. And then Jesus opens up the tomb and calls out what? What's his first word? Lazarus. I don't know how much time you spent around dead things. I don't care how loudly you scream that. I don't care how clearly you say it. If they will not be alive, they will not be alive. That's the end of the story. The whole purpose that this is included here is to show us this aspect of the gospel. Apply it straight up to evangelism. I don't care how clear you make it. I don't care how loudly you scream it. I do not care how clearly you present it. Unless God is saving that person, there's nothing you can do. And if you think there is, you and I can take a trip to the nearest cemetery and you can demonstrate a much easier miracle, and that is raising someone physically from the dead. Because I will tell you this, the scriptures put forth that raising somebody spiritually from the dead is a far higher miracle still. Christian, are you envious of Lazarus? What an experience he must have had. Let me turn it around on you for a second. Lazarus is envious of us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within our physical, mortal bodies. Doing the same thing daily to our actions and desires that was done in him merely physically. When Jesus looks into this tomb, he does not see Lazarus in there patiently waiting to be resurrected. No, he sees a dead man and his words bring power. Not ours, his words Lazarus. That's when Lazarus rose from the dead. Lazarus, come out. And then the only place that a phrase like this can actually even happen in Scripture, the man who had died came out.
his hands, his feet, all bound with linen straps, his face wrapped with a cloth. And then Jesus looked at those that surrounded all of them and said, unbind him and let him go. Do you really think that all the overtones of the gospel's message of death to life and an unbinding of sin's power in our life are accidentally paralleled here? They are not. Every aspect of here parallels every picture of salvation in scripture. From the let him go to the let my people go of Exodus. From the unbinding of him to the unbinding of our souls from sin. To the expression to Israel to come out from among them and be separate. The same thing to Lazarus. Come out of the tomb and be risen. The overtones throughout scripture and then now even into the church age of how salvation has always happened from Genesis through Revelation. It happens at the command of God, to the people of God, at the instruction of God, at the creation of God to unbind us and let us go. Where? To try better? To go to the glory of God. To go to Christ. Friend, if you think salvation was because you found God, may the scriptures fix your perspective a little bit. Salvation occurred in your life because God found you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That which was lost didn't even know it was lost. Any of you ever lost a three-year-old in a store before? When you're looking for them, and it's been, you know, the eternity that is two minutes in that situation, and then you find them, they don't even know they were lost. You're losing your mind, and they're playing with imaginary Play-Doh. And the expression here is not so much to say, I finally found God. No, you didn't. God wasn't lost. You were. You weren't the seeker. You were the hider. Dead things don't find life. Life is given to them. The dead do not praise God. The living do. And the pictures and overtones of the gospel throughout scripture pour into this passage that anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament would just see it on every word of Christ here. Expressing to them the reality that there is no hope for us to come out of that tomb unless God brings it. Same for salvation. The salvation of every person who trusts in the Lord is a greater miracle than the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The angels did not rejoice in heaven when Lazarus walked out of that tomb, but the angels rejoice in heaven every single time God saves someone. Do you see that? Let me focus on the dead man for a second and his crazy week. 
Imagine, if you will, you're in Lazarus' shoes. You get sick. You are personal friends with God incarnate. I would imagine he had a similar attitude that his sisters had. Because both of them say the exact same thing. If Jesus were here, I wouldn't be dying. And then much to your chagrin, death occurs anyway. And you are ripped out of this world in a moment. What he experienced for four days, I cannot speak to. Other than to say he is with the Lord. And he is not in that tomb. And then, whatever grand feeling it is to be hidden with the Lord is again taken from you in a moment. And you find yourself in a cold tomb hearing the first words, Lazarus, come out. However off-putting that feeling would have been, he stands up with bound feet and hands, unable to see, unable to speak, and just walks out of the tomb. And the very next thing he hears, amidst the gaping mouths of everyone around, is unbind him and let him go. Most of us think the story of Lazarus ends there. But it doesn't. You see, the Pharisees and the council heard about this and were getting frustrated that everyone started believing in Jesus because they saw the resurrection of Lazarus and they intended not only to put Christ to death, but also Lazarus again. Let me put something forward to you. Do you think Lazarus feared their threats? You're going to put me to death? I mean, it's like the earliest example of been there and done that. It's, really holds no fear for me anymore. Fine. I mean, honestly, where I was is better than where I am, so perfect. No problem. But here the same, the same testimony goes to us. And Jesus says the same thing to us. When we are being persecuted, when we are suffering, do not fear those who can simply harm the body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul. If your fear and your greatest fear is persecution or suffering, may I suggest that your fear is misplaced. Again, we are taking an ultimate emotion and we are placing it on something that is created. Your ultimate fear should be him who lives forever. Your ultimate reverence should be given to him your worship is owed to him and all the glory that's going on even in this story and in our life should focus us in on his glory. That is why Jesus was raising Lazarus from the dead, not because he was a personal friend. Most Christians 
may attach the miracle of Lazarus to their salvation. But allow me an extended metaphor for a moment. Your Christian walk did not just begin with the gospel. My Christian walk at 11 years old did not just begin with the gospel. It continues with the gospel. Every day, every action, every good work done is done in heaven's name. All the credit for whatever is happening in our lives is owed to the grace and the glory of God. And here, Lazarus' resurrection is here to remind you and I that when God tells us to do something, he does not leave it to us to accomplish it. It is the life that he works in us and the spirit of God that he has given us that brings it about. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, the verse that's usually left off of that quotation, explains that very thing. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and all of that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. Most of us know this for salvation, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God himself has ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. Our Christian lives are just as miraculous as our salvation. It is God stepping into this physical, dying world and bringing life to these mortal bodies. And so when we see a virtue that God has developed in our life, we do not become puffed up with pride. We become thankful. And we give credit to God for that because we know what we contribute, not only to salvation, the sin to be saved from, but you and I both know that the Christian virtues do not come from your natural heart. They come from God. And if your concept of the Christian life is, I got that covered, I can do that. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. If you look at the Christian life and go, I can live that, may I suggest your perspective of the Christian life is merely human and it cannot save in the least. The Christian life is utterly impossible to live for a simple, natural human. I'll give you just two commandments Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So, well, first I got to know who my neighbor is. Okay, Jesus will teach you the people you hate that God loves and has saved. It's not about who lives next to you and who reminds you of you. When someone came up to him and asked him, who's my neighbor? He says, someone who serves God, that's an ethnicity that you hate. He says this to a Jewish guy, and he says, that's Samaritan right there. And you know, he doesn't say the Jewish guy who served the Samaritan. He did it the whole other way around where the Jewish guy was in need and the Samaritan helped him. I, there's nothing more offensive to that idea. Why did that Samaritan serve the man who was beaten? Because God had already saved him Love one another. 
say, well, this Christian or that Christian has let me down, has done this, has done that. Find yourself in the same shoes as Peter. How many times will my brother sin against me that I'll forgive him? Is it a ridiculous number like seven? Jesus says, no, no, don't worry. It's not a ridiculous number like seven. Let's go with something hyperbolic. Um, 77. Why not? You know what, forget it. Let's go 70 times seven. And for those of you counting, 481, 483, <laughs> hyperbole, all the times. That is not reserved for everyone. That is reserved for other Christians. Love one another. Do you really think you can do that? Do you really think that we are capable of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind? And I love the fact that we don't actually have an English word for this. Uh, strength is not the English word of, uh, of comparison. It is actually a life force. The closest English word we have to it is oomph. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and oomph. Every energy, every strength, every purpose, every everything at every moment of every day. Forever. Do you really think you can live the Christian life, Christian. It is the Spirit of God who brings life to these mortal bodies. It is He who gives breath to our lungs, energy to our hands, virtue to our hearts, and love to our minds. Every day, as a Christian, and this is what the scriptures keep showing us over and over and over again, every day as a Christian is more miraculous than the raising of Lazarus from the dead. When you understand the depth of what the Spirit of God is doing and working in his people's hearts to cause these people, our mortal flesh, to love their God and to love one another, And to see Christ lifted up much higher than us. To lift one another up towards Christ. Because in humility of mind, we will treat one another as more significant than ourselves. And through that, find a unity in the gospel that does not exist in this world. That is a slice of heaven peering through. John says, you want to see heaven? Look at it for just a moment. Here you have the Son speaking to the Father. Here you have their intricate fellowship working to bring life to death. And in the middle of that, we see our need for him every hour. Those of you who have followed the Lord for a long time, and have become used to interacting with him so that it's become commonplace, I hope to provide you afresh an appreciation for what he is doing in your life. I assure you, if you are still pulling breath in this world, God has not finished using you. 
You are not through. You are not done. God has purpose for you every moment and every hour, just as he did for Lazarus that day, just as he does for every other one of us. Do not become weary in doing good. But by patience and gratitude, follow him who lives forever, because I promise you, those who put their faith in Christ will also live forever. It is worth the pursuit at any cost. Don't lose sight of it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Again, it comes directly to our hearts, to our souls. We thank you, Father, for inspiring these words, for using fallible men to do so. Father, even the same for preservation. It has come to us through sacrifice, through suffering, and through fallible people. And here it sits in front of us in much the same. It comes to us and speaks to us in the midst of our suffering, frustrations, and failures. Not to tell us we got it and we can rise to the occasion, but to say that Christ has us and he is risen to the occasion. And so shall we at his call and at his desired promise. We thank you for Christ, who is the end of the law for all who believe. We thank you for Christ, risen from the dead as health, and coming in power again. We pray that we take solace and patience from our sufferings, knowing that Christ has walked this path before us, and we cheerfully follow him wherever it goes. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.